You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Well, good morning. Uh, it is great to be with you. If we've not met before, my name is Craig, and I serve as one of the pastors here. And uh, I just want to take a moment to welcome you and say it's really a thrill for us uh, to have you with us here today. Thanks for uh, coming and uh, joining us for worship. Uh, what we do during this time normally is we just uh, teach through books of the Bible, and uh, we are moving towards the end of the book of Judges. That's where we've been for a number of weeks, and today we're going to be uh, in Judges chapter 15. So if you have a Bible or a, a device, your phone, whatever has the scripture, if you'd look at Judges 15, if you have neither, that's okay because we're going to put that on the screen for you here in just a minute. Uh, and I want, today I want to talk about drawing a straight line with crooked sticks. This is a famous saying that I cannot verify. I did my internet search, and there are conflicting reports of who came up with this phrase. Whether it was Martin Luther during the Reformation or whether it was one of the early church fathers, I don't know. Everyone says uh, that it came from a different source, and it just kind of proves the famous saying by Abraham Lincoln that you can't believe everything on the internet. And um, that'll land on some of you in about 10 minutes. Um, But anyway, uh, so I don't know who said this, but the idea is this, that God is able to draw a straight line with crooked sticks. And that's really the story of the whole Bible. That's the story of the whole Testament, because while we want to elevate the various characters from the Old Testament and make them heroes, now certainly there are aspects of their life that we can emulate and that we can honor to be sure, but our tendency is to look for a hero in the story to hold up and elevate and uh, then uh, take moral lessons from that hero's life. And what we learn when we look carefully at the scripture is that there's only one hero, in the Bible, there's only one person bringing salvation, and that is God, and perhaps that's seen no more clearly than in the case of Samson. We're spending four weeks on Samson, and uh, because we're doing a chapter a week, he's, uh, he's given four chapters in the book of Judges. Uh, he is the twelfth and final judge in the book of Judges, and in the book of Judges, a judge is not someone uh, who renders judgments in a black robe with a gavel like we think of a, a judge, but a judge is, is a leader that brings God's people freedom. Uh, usually a military leader, that sort of a thing. And Samson is the 12th one, and he's unique among all of them. He gets by far the most press, four full chapters in the Bible. Uh, But he is chosen before his birth. There's an extensive birth narrative devoted to who he will be and the calling that's upon his life before he even shows up. This is in chapter 13 of Judges. Uh, In chapter 14, uh, we see his first action. Uh, It's a difficult time in Israel. Uh, They have been under the rule of the Philistines, the enemy of the Lord, for 40 years. And unlike every other uh, uh, occasion in the book of Judges, no one's crying out for help. No one's asking God for help. No one sees this as a problem. They are oppressed by the Philistines, and at the same time, they are compromised and blending in, adopting the gods of the 
the Philistines. And so God's going to raise up this wonderful leader, Samson, and the first thing we find out that he does in chapter 14 is that he decides he wants to get married and he's going to marry a Philistine woman. So not only is he going to sort of be used by God to oppose the Philistines, he's going to love them so much, he's going to marry one of them and he's going to join their culture in essence by marriage. He's going to be connected to them. Uh, so it's, it's a, a very troubling situation. Well, what happens, what we saw last week, Caleb preached chapter 14, and what we, what we see is that uh, they have a wedding feast. Before they're actually married, they're having this multiple-day wedding feast, and uh, Samson makes a bet with the Philistines. He tells them a riddle and says, uh, you know, I'll bet you you can't solve this riddle. Well, the Philistines coerce his bride to getting the answer to the riddle out of him. So she does so. They answer the riddle correctly, and we see what kind of guy Samson is. He goes and, because of that, kills 30 Philistines and takes all their stuff to pay back the bet that he lost. And then we see he goes home uh, angry. The end of chapter 14, it ends this way. After that all happens, it says, And he, in hot anger, Samson went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, uh, who had been his best man. Oops. Uh, So this is what happens. Well, chapter 15, uh, we're going to break this into three sections. And uh, the first section we see is Samson's revenge for what we just read about. This is God's word. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. After some days at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in, and her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to him, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches, and he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, if this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow and went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock at Edom. There's a lot of drama in the Samson story, no doubt. So what happens is Samson goes home angry after killing 30 people, and uh, he cools off a bit and then decides that he will come visit his wife. And it's interesting, in lieu of a bouquet of flowers, he shows up with a young goat. 
to give her as a gift. This must be a romantic gift and a mood setter because he makes his intentions quite clear in verse 1. I will go into my wife in the chamber. Uh, But his rather amorous pursuit is shut down quickly uh, when the father-in-law says to him, uh, you know, hold up a minute, Samson. Uh, Actually, uh, I gave your wife to be married to your best man because you were so angry that I assumed that you hated her. Now, how did this happen? Well, evidently what happened, uh, I mean, wouldn't put anything above the Philistines, but uh, this was an understandable event. What happened was they were at a marriage feast celebrating, uh, much like maybe we would have a, though it was multiple days, much like we might have a, we- a, um, you know, a wedding reception. And then following the feast, the couple would consummate their marriage. Well, that obviously had not happened, and that's what Samson is showing up to do now. So they're not, we're not fully married. And be- since they weren't fully married, which he aims in this visit to accomplish, she was free. And uh, the father gave her off in marriage to the best man. Well, Samson's reply is... Uh, Uh, Well, actually, the father's reply is, you know, you can marry her sister. Well, he doesn't like that, wants no part of that at all. And his response is simply, I'm not responsible for what I'm about to do. Uh, The NIV translates verse 3, I have a right to get even. And we've learned already that Samson has a short fuse. And what happens now is he begins to start this blood feud, this sort of battle of revenge with the Philistines, where I do this and you do that, and then I do this and you do that. And each event, it escalates uh, worse and worse, where the punishment is greater than the crime. And so what does he do? Well, he says, look, you didn't allow me to complete my marriage to your daughter, so the reasonable thing to do is for me to go catch 30, uh, rather 300 foxes, which was probably miraculous in and of itself. Uh, I'm going to catch 300 foxes, then I'm going to manage to tie their tails together with a torch attached to the tied tails and set them free uh, in your crops. It's harvest time, it said in the first verse. And uh, what I'm going to do is burn down all of your crops because that's certainly the reasonable thing to do when you have hindered my marriage. And so verse 5 says that he burned all the stacks of grain. That means everything that had been harvested, all the standing grain, that which had yet to been harvested, and all of their olive orchards. So in other words, he goes into a region and torches their entire food source for the year torches it, tanks their economy, uh, because this is what you do when you don't get your way in marriage. I mean, we look at a passage like this and we say, how in the world can God's chosen leader, made a Nazarite before his birth, a whole chapter announcing that this, this guy would come on the scene who would be different, how can this guy behave so badly? But there's a deeper question than that, actually a far more concerning question than how can Samson be out of control, and that is how can God be behind this in some way? 
make no mistake, God is behind this in some way because chapter 14 told us that the whole deal with Samson going down to the Philistines, that it was, that it was from God because God was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Here's the situation. Israel is apathetic. They are complacent. Uh, they are doing nothing against their cruel overlords, least of which are they crying out to God for some kind of freedom. And so they are living a complacent people in the land that God has given them. He has called them there to be a testimony to him, to build a righteous and just society, to follow his law, to be a light in the darkness. And they are ruled by the darkness, and they are compromised with the darkness, and they are comfortable in the darkness. Sometimes when the lights are out, it's dark for so long, you forget what the light even looks like. It's going to ultimately be 40 years, and so God is stirring the pot. Now, he's stirring the pot with sinners. Samson and the Philistines are fully responsible for their actions. And God is fully responsible for his actions. This is uh, what we call a confluence, a flowing together, the human will and God's will flowing together so that Samson is responsible for his actions. And this is what we see throughout the scripture, that humans are free and God is free. God is just more free, and he uses the free choices of sinful humans to accomplish his purposes. As Caleb said last week, he uses what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Or as we would say this week, God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. And Samson, friends, is bent. He is bent. Well, the Philistines find out their crops are destroyed. They say, who did this? And they said, well, Samson did this because his father-in-law gave uh, the daughter to the best man. And so the Philistines go and burn and kill the woman and her father. Out of control. You, You burn our crops. We kill. She has nothing to do with any of this. We kill innocent people. Verse 8 says that Samson responds to that, and we don't really know exactly what this means, but verse 8, he says, he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. Scholars think that striking someone hip and thigh is probably a term from hand-to-hand combat. So, we started the whole Samson series with me showing you a picture of a toy action figure Samson and explaining to you that he's not a WWE character like the toy demonstrates. Actually, maybe he is because he did the hip and thigh move, uh, which is like the figure four leg lock or uh, jumping from the top rope or whatever it is. So he, he does this move on them and strikes them down. And then he goes and hides out in Edom. Well, it's not over. Verses 9 through 17 say, Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? They said, We have come up to bind Samson and to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, We've come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. 
frankincense and said to them, swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, no, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck a thousand men. And Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have struck down a thousand men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place is called Ramoth Lehi, which means jawbone hill. That's what that term means. Well, the Philistines respond Uh, you burned our crops, we'll kill two people, and then we're going to go attack Israel. So they go up to the tribe of Judah, and they make a raid at this place that's actually called Lehi, which means jawbone. So they attack this place, and uh, they've done this because, uh, you know, they make the attack, and Judah says, hey, why are you bothering us? And they say, well, because we are here to get Samson, uh, we are going to get him for what he did to us. Then interestingly, once they actually get Samson, Samson says, uh, you know, I just did to them what they did to me. They're just going back and forth, and we see that Samson is no different than the Philistines. He just acts exactly like them here, and so they are panicked. Now, this is really telling for where Israel's at in this season. They are panicked. They go to Samson and say, don't you realize Who rules us? The Philistines rule us. You can't be going out and burning their crops and and putting wrestling moves on them and whatever else. You can't be doing these things, killing 30 of them as you did in chapter uh, 14. You can't be doing these things. They rule over us. Really, no one looks good in this chapter. Samson doesn't look good. The Philistines don't look good. Judah surely doesn't look good. In chapter 1 of Judges, Judah is the tribe that is defeating the Canaanites, that is taking the Holy Land for God. They are the leading tribe in courage, in dedication to the Lord, in consecration to the Lord, in fulfilling the purposes of the Lord. And now they are shaking, scared. They accuse Samson of disrupting the status quo. What are you doing? And they sell out the defender, the judge that God has raised up. They sell him out. They are so controlled by the Philistines, so controlled by their gods, that they can't even imagine God delivering them. They can't even imagine God raising someone up to to get the Philistines off their back, to return the land which God has given them to them. It's unthinkable. Oh, sure, they are happy to rebel against God. They are happy to ignore God. They are happy to worship idols. But they dare not mess with the big, bad Philistines. They are, it, it is a mess in Israel at this time. And again, God will draw a straight line of redemption with crooked sticks. That includes all of Judah and all of Israel in this day. One commentator said this, Kenneth Way, about this situation. He says, the irony here is astounding. 
Israel's would-be deliverer is bound by the people he is meant to deliver. And they deliver him over to the oppressors from whom he is meant to deliver them. So they take him, he's the deliverer, and they deliver him to the oppressors who will harm him. Now he makes them promise, you're not going to kill me. And this is classic. Oh yeah, verse 13, yeah, we, we are not going to kill you. We are only going to bind you and hand you over to the people that are going to kill you. But we will not kill you. So tremendous loyalty and commitment to God and support of the judge that God has raised up for the people Israel. Well, when Samson gets to, tells us in verse uh, 14, Lehi, when he gets to uh, Jawbone Town, uh, the Philistines come out shouting, it says, verse 14. The Philistines are shouting to meet him. We have got him, the enemy of the Philistines, the one who is doing us harm. We have now got him, and uh, he is ours. And they are cheering. They are celebrating because they have surely won. His own people are giving him up. What in the world? How could he possibly, he's bound. How could he get out of this at this point? And what follows is one of the most spectacular, miraculous battles in the whole Old Testament. There's really uh, nothing quite like this with one man. It says, the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him, verse 14. That, That was what they had not considered those Philistines. Philistines never do consider that, that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. And all of a sudden, the ropes that are binding him become like burning flax. They just melt off of him. He is free, and he picks up a fresh jawbone of a donkey. It's fresh. It hasn't had time to grow brittle and and break. It's still got the sharp teeth uh, in it. And sure, he's breaking his Nazarite vow. He's not allowed to touch anything dead. But uh, nonetheless, he picks up this jawbone and starts wailing it, swinging it. And he kills a thousand men of the Philistines. It's crazy. How do we read a passage like this? I mean, some of us are feeling sorry, those poor Philistines. Or some of us are saying, wow, how could that really happen? How do we read and interpret a passage like this, this this kind of a battle. What are we supposed to think about a guy like Samson beating a thousand people? I appreciate commentator Dale Davis. He says that in a passage like this, you should consider the context, first of all, and then you should consider probably how the original readers would have read this. I think that's really wise for always interpreting the Bible. Consider the context. What's the context? The Philistines are wicked. All of the Canaanite people are wicked. Remember, we've read passages about where the Canaanites uh, sacrificed their children in worship to pagan gods. They are an evil, cruel people. And they have God's people under their thumb. They're ruling over them, oppressing them. So the context is that Israel is in big trouble. And these evil people are charging and rushing. And what are they thinking? They're thinking, yes, we have got Israel. We have got Samson, this little guy who was going to, you know, sort of rebel against us. We're going to put him down because we have Israel under our thumb and don't miss it. We have Yahweh under our thumb. The way everybody viewed things in this time was that whatever the God over the locale was, 
that if, if one nation took over another or one people took over another, that demonstrated their God was more powerful than the other God. But we know from the scripture that Israel's God, Yahweh, is the God over all. He is the God over all gods, the king over all kings, the creator of heaven and earth. So how do you think the first readers might have read this? They don't read Philistines as just some mystical historical group. They read them as the people who have cruelly oppressed God's people, the people who have defied God, and the people that are laughing and jeering that they're about to kill Samson. He says the original readers would have read this uh, with at least a mild degree of humor. This is funny what has happened to them, the enemies of God. He writes, the Philistines are sure they have their foe at their mercy until Samson is suddenly beating sense into their heads with an ass's dentures. Dear reader, you needn't be so glum. Don't be so concerned about the Philistines. Think how your Israelite brother would react to the story. Go ahead and laugh a little, he says. Well, whether there's humor in the story or not, one thing is certain. The Philistines are fools to oppose God and his people. And this is the story throughout the Bible, that nations, that kings, that rulers oppose God's people, and it never goes well for them. It didn't go well for Egypt when they held Israel in slavery for 400 years. It doesn't go well for the Canaanites. It will not later go well for Babylon, who will take God's people uh, into captivity. It didn't go well ultimately for Rome during the time of Jesus. And it won't go well for our nation or any other nation on the planet that defies the Lord God or persecutes his people. It will not go well in the end because God rules over all. This is why in Psalm 2 it says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves up against the Lord and his anointed. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. You know what derision is? It's mockery. The Lord mocks any human that would attempt to defeat him or to hinder his purposes or to squelch his people. This passage is a warning to any enemy of God. It is a warning that God will have his way. His kingdom will come. His will will be done because one day earth and heaven will be one. That rhymed, and that was spontaneous. <laughs> Samson's revenge. Number two, we saw uh, after Samson's revenge uh, that uh, Israel's compromise is what that was about. The last section is really about God's grace. Verses 18 to 20, here's how the chapter ends. And he was very, that is Samson, was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the circumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore the name of it was called in Hakari. It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines. 
20 years. This is the first time we see Samson seeking God in the whole story. He'll only seek God one other time at his death. Doesn't portray him as a great God seeker, but he does here. He recognizes that God has done what? He says, you have granted this great salvation. The jawbone incident, yeah, that, he recognizes that was you, God. That was the spirit of the Lord. I was doomed, and you rescued me and our people from them. So he is recognizing what God has done, and now he's in need and recognizes that after that, if God doesn't give him something to drink, he will die of thirst. He says, you don't want me to die of thirst after what has just happened. And uh, this is likely why he makes it into Hebrews 11. Samson is in the faith chapter of Hebrews 11, and he only calls out to the Lord twice. This is probably why. In his need, he sees, he recognizes God and sees his need and cries out to God. And so what does God do? Well, he does what he did with Israel in the wilderness. He breaks out and gives water from a rock, essentially, uh, some kind of opening. He gives water, and it's a picture of God's wonderful grace that God does the miraculous to sustain his people, that God not only calls his people, but he gives them all that they need. He sustains them. He empowers them for battle, and after the battle, he refreshes and restores him. And the spot is renamed the Collar's Spring. The Collar's Spring is what that uh, in Hackery means. It, 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 it remains that, I guess, evidently at the time of this writing, it is still called that. And Samson is refreshed. Samson is revived by the God who brings salvation to his people. And the point of the epilogue in this chapter, now we'll, we'll find the end of, end of Samson's life next week, the Delilah episode and the end of his life will be next week. But, but we see here that the purpose of this chapter is to emphasize there's really only one hero in the story. It's not Samson. Uh, it's certainly not Israel that sells out Samson or gives up, delivers Samson. It's God because even as Samson recognizes, you have granted this great salvation. Now I'm ready to die and you have brought water miraculously to sustain me. That is the purpose. God alone fulfills his purposes through people who've lost their purpose. When God's people lose their purpose, he still fulfills his purpose through them, even if he has to get in and stir the pot and stir up something with their enemies. God alone does this. He empowers his people supernaturally, and he delivers them with salvation and refreshes them And it's all by pure grace alone. This is the message of this chapter. It is the message of the whole Bible. It is the message that we proclaim every week. Because, friends, I've got nothing else for you. I have nothing to offer but the grace of God. God mercifully acting upon us. God giving us what we don't deserve and sparing us from what we do deserve. God who is accessible, who is free and available to all who call out upon him. This is really the application from the end of this chapter, isn't it? It ends with this reminder, which is so clear, that God, anyone who calls out to him, in this case Samson calls out to him, and God stands ready 
to provide, to refresh. The words of the text are uh, that God split open the place, brings water out of it, and that Samson's spirit returned and he is revived. Something more happens here. Something supernatural happens here. Yes, he gets water, which is great, but his spirit returns to him. He is renewed and revived. This is what God does for his people. And this is held up to Israel as they hear this story passed down orally at first and then written in the text of Scripture. As they hear this story, this is a reminder to compromising Israel throughout their history that do you know what God does for his people when they simply ask? No one's been asking for 40 years. Everybody's been compromising. Everybody is, uh, has enculturated into the surrounding culture. They're not distinct. They've forgotten the God who brought them out of Egypt. They've neglected the God. God's not forsaken his people. His people has forsaken him. God has not forgotten his people. He never will. His people have forgotten him. And it's this reminder. It's like Samson is representative of all of Israel. And he holds, they hold up this mirror to them and says, Israel, this is what you're like. You're just like Samson. But can you imagine what would happen if you would call out? Can you imagine what God would do if you would repent? Can you imagine if you would remember and if you would uh, ask God to give you fresh his spirit to open your eyes to the reality of who he is and what he's done? That's what the epilogue of this chapter is showing us. And that's what he says to us today as well. Because we can easily be blinded by the gods of our age. We're not Worshiping the gods of the Philistines, the Baals, the Ashtaroth of the Canaanites, these various fertility gods, the god of the storm, the god of the sun. No, we're not worshiping them, but we're tempted by the gods of our age, which is security and money, security and reputation. We look all around us for a place to, what will help me to stand secure? What will give my life meaning? What will make me feel successful? Uh, What will give me a sense of well-being? What is the story I am writing for myself, the story of success in my life? What are the hopes and dreams that I am building my life on apart from the God who is writing the ultimate story? We so quickly want to invite God to bless our story rather than being invited into his to find our part and play our part in his story. And that's what Israel has failed to do here. That's what Samson's failed to do here. Every other judge is gathering the people of God to stand against the enemy and repent and worship God. Samson is in this individualistic campaign of revenge. Lust, anger, revenge. He's just going out and killing people and burning crops. He's brought no one together. He, he He is all about Samson's story, and yet God is still gracious to him. God is still merciful. Can you imagine if all of Judah at this moment had fallen on their knees in repentance, saw the jawbone incident, and repented to God, Lord, you are almighty. We worship you alone. Now empower us to to throw off our oppressor. But nobody does that. It's It's a mirror to them to show, can you imagine what would happen? And God holds the same promise out to us. Oh, it's a much greater promise to us. It's a better promise. Because a thousand years later, God would send another deliverer who never acted out of revenge. 
who never used power and strength and the anointing of the Spirit for selfish ends, but always employed, stewarded the gifts and the power of the Spirit to serve and to bless largely the marginalized, the hurting, the sick, the outcast, the sinner, the child, the woman, those in that culture who were on the margins. That's Jesus, who is ever announcing good news to the poor, healing the sick, the leper, raising the dead. Jesus would come, the true and greater Samson, the true and greater judge, the ultimate deliverer who never acted for himself but gave his life for us in the cross. And in the coming of Jesus, we find the first and only time in all of history that God will draw a straight line with a straight stick. He's only had crooked sticks to work with. Until the straight stick, the God-man, Jesus, fully God and fully man, who gave his life a sacrificial death for us. Jesus is the refreshing water from the rock. Jesus is the one who gives the Spirit. Jesus is the one who refreshes and renews today by pouring out his Spirit upon us. Jesus would one day in his life, in John 7, stand at the great feast of tabernacles and says, whoever is thirsty, come to me and drink. And from you, rivers of living water will flow from your inmost being, from your inner self, he says. Jesus promises eternal life and eternal refreshing for everyone who will come to him. And I encourage you to come to him today, whether it's your first time or your 10,000th time this is the, the hope here that God, even, even someone like Samson, even someone who's misdirected, misguided, controlled by his passions, his urges, even this one is revived when he calls to the Lord. And so he promises us as well. In his commentary on Judges, Judges 15, David Jackman writes, he is always ready and willing to demonstrate his sovereign power for the renewal and refreshment of all those who call out to him in faith. That is the meaning of the miraculous provision of the spring at Enhakari, the spring, the miraculous spring created by God. Yes, God does draw straight lines with crooked sticks. He does that for each and every one of us. But that's not only, it's not the whole story. He also empowers and refreshes and renews all who will look to him for eternal life and all who follow him for renewed refreshing. Let's pray according to those uh, promises as we close. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.